This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time at Core Brain Journal. And we have a very exciting guest. He's been on before. He's an old friend of mine, but he's not an old friend. He's a friend. (laughs) (laughs) And it's Mr. Jeff Copper, the coach from Dig Coaching. And we're going to be talking, my friends, about boredom. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Parker, I'm so grateful that you're, uh, you're having me on again. I have so much fun working with you and talking about these fun subjects. Well, it's been fun for both of us. Uh, we've worked together for a long period of time, and, and I like the fact that Jeff is so creative in the way he rethinks what's actually going on in so many people's minds and comes up with some really cool answers. And I'm, we're going to talk more about Jeff in just a second. I'll introduce him formally. Let me just say a few words from our supportive network out there. Corbin Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond what's so commonplace, guesswork. They also provide multiple, get this, training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use their excellent data effectively. Check out their website for references and testing details and take note on this offer that they have for you. You can go over there now and register for complimentary test drawings. Each week they change the drawing and you register over there, something is very likely good is going to happen. And these tests are range in price from, you know, like 219 for the IgG testing up to more than that. So you want to go over and register for them and for the test. And that is at greatplainslaboratory.com with an S forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal. That makes it really easy. So now let me tell you a little bit about Jeff. Jeff and I have been hanging out for a long period of time. He's an ADHD coach. But let me tell you the details of who he is. He's an attention coach and a top contributor in the field of ADHD. As the founder of DIG, DIG Coaching Practice, and the host and founder of Attention Talk Radio and Attention Talk Video, Jeff guides adults, educators, families, and upper management on how to first recognize which ADHD traits are creating the challenges, and this is the key point, and then how to turn these traits, those traits themselves, right into strengths and recovery practice. Jeff specializes in helping folks overcome information overload, chronic disorganization, ADHD symptoms, time management problems, attention deficit disorder, impulsivity, and other conditions that may hinder hinder their advancement. You know, I'm thinking while I'm talking, because I'm thinking about telling you about the boredom thing. So what we're going to be talking about boredom. And I'm trying to figure out how to segue into the boredom thing, which we'll segue when we get to it. So here's the personal note on Jeff. He struggled with ADHD challenges for most of his life until he devoted himself to better understanding his own personal ADHD mind. His anatomy of attention construct 
is the premises behind his coaching activities, his classes, and his attention exercises. This unique model is the result of his better understanding of his own ADHD brain. It also provides the unusual benefit of coaching the individual's inner coach so they can grasp their unique attentional needs, they can identify systems they already have in place, and the areas that are need improvement. That's what we're gonna be talking about right now today. By learning to tune their attention, folks with ADHD can learn to create systems and strategies that work for their unique needs. So Jeff received a bachelor's degree from Indiana University and an MBA from the University of Tampa. He's actively involved in the profession of ADD coaching and has obtained professional designations from the International Coaches Federation and the Professional Association for ADHD Coaches. We met long ago at a national conference and we've been buddies ever since. He has completed training certification programs at the ADHD Coach Academy and the Coaches Training Institute. Let me tell you, Joe, he's been on the road for a long period of time. What you really need to do, which isn't quite adequately dealt with here in this little bio, is you need to really look at his activity on YouTube because he's got Attention Talk Radio where he does interviews. He's interviewed the brightest and best in the field, and he is over at uh, on YouTube. His Attention Talk video is just loaded with really good interviews with all the people in the industry who are really focusing on the evolution of mind science and the practical applications in everyday life. So with that, let's go ahead and talk about Jeff. How did you happen to spin out this concept, which is so ubiquitous? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's like you are the father of ubiquity here. <laughs> you know, is boredom ubiquitous or what? And Jeff has some answers for it. How did you happen to get into it, Jeff? Ubiquitous is an interesting word because back in 2012, I was at a conference and an individual came up with me with a magazine and an article that was written about boredom. And believe it or not, in 2012, while boredom is a ubiquitous experience, the researchers didn't have a unified definition of it. So we're like on the precipice. I mean, everybody knows what it's like, but they couldn't actually define it. And, <laughs> oh, and I was like, I was captivated by that in a moment. And there's there a few things, there's different kinds of uh, boredom underneath that, that I, I began to study. And we'll talk about agitated boredom, the definition of that for a second, but it really kind of captivated me. And you know, Dr. Parker, you're so much into the brain, the mind, and how it's all connects in the body and how it's all kind of put together. I deal a lot with the mindful, thoughtful brain and really trying to kind of help, like kind of manage yourself to be intentional what you're doing. And the thing that's interesting to me is we're going to talk about boredom, but you know, I, I coach so many people with uh, ADHD and people think of it as an attention deficit. And as I've learned over the years in interviewing experts, it's really more of a self-regulation issue. And today we're going to be talking about boredom, which in a sense is the opposite side of the same coin when it comes to attention. So attention is what draws to you and think of boredom as a magnet, what repels you away from the opposite side. So as we talk through today, keep in the back of your mind that this is very attentional based. It's going to sound very different because it's a different lens, but we're also going to talk about the need to self-regulate when it comes to boredom. So as you can see, the topic is very simplistic, yet very complicated and uh, fascinating. So hopefully we'll have some fun with it. Well, I think that whole idea of self-regulation is really so relevant because that's what executive function is all about. I mean, are we going to self-regulate in changing reality? Are we going to actually be able to manage ourselves better? Are we going to remain stuck in some 
off-site place that doesn't have anything to do with reality? How are we going to get out of the, of the bind that we find ourselves in? And frequently what happens, as everybody here listening knows, boredom is it's ubiquitous in the sense that we all experience it. But the problem for those who suffer with executive function problems, and as you know, Jeff, I don't even like the word ADHD anymore. Yeah, I agree. Because it's a label that has uh, limited value when you really start talking about executive function and the things that are actually going on in the brain, which we're going to be talking about in a minute. But people suffer with these things when they have, they suffer from consternation, frustration, and developmental delay when they're preoccupied and unable to overcome and manage boredom in their lives. They don't know what to do with themselves, which is where we come into, I'm sure, and I'm looking forward to you hearing about it, hearing you talk about it, is how do you do self-regulation? Well, I think the first question that's relevant, which we need to touch on, is you talked about it a little bit, but let's get your definition of how does a person know what boredom is. Let's get away from the ubiquity. Let's okay. get into what the problem is, and then how they can draw back from boredom and what they can do about it. Okay, so just let me give you the, the theoretical things first, and it's kind of the practical side. Is you know, The definition of boredom is really the adverse experience of wanting but not being able to engage or satisfy an activity. Okay, at its most core level, it's basically you want to be satisfied and you're not. And there's different kinds of boredom. And the one I want to talk about today, people with ADHD are more susceptible to. It's what's called agitated boredom. And the definition of that is it's the physical discomfort. I want to emphasize the physical discomfort where one is motivated to escape the plight. So I like to change that around. It's you're physically uncomfortable and you're going to do something in order to get comfortable. And as a lens, Dr. Parker, I do a lot of, you know, if I'm working with somebody with ADHD and I've got like a significant other that's with them, I say, have you ever been really, really cold? I mean, cold. I mean, really, really cold. And there was a woman one time in Canada said, yeah, it was really cold. I said, do you ever do something that you probably shouldn't do? And she said, oh yeah, like break into a house one time because I was so cold. I said, yeah, like that. <laughs> and why'd you do it? Well, to get warm. Oh, so you were so physically uncomfortable. You were motivated to break into the house, which you shouldn't have done in order to get comfortable. And she goes, oh, I said, that's kind of what we're talking about. Those with ADHD, there's a physical agitation. It's funny because when I describe this to people that I'm coaching, it, they really identify with the physicalness. And I'll say, have you ever been like pacing the cage? And when I refer to that, it's like being in the zoo where you see an animal just going back. They've got this nervous energy they don't know what to do with. And it's funny because as a coach, we know that sometimes in order to, to get triggers for a person to know what's going on, whether it's like boredom or emotion, if you listen to the body and you learn to feel that, body doesn't lie. And when you can feel that anxiety that's welling up, in that moment, you can kind of pause and do something about it. So in simple terms, I like to talk about is agitated boredom. In practical terms, I like to say, hey, listen, when people are bored, they're physically uncomfortable and their, their brain, if you will, I like to think about the brain, is going to do something to satisfy it in order to get that comfort, which we're going to talk about the reward system and dopamine here in a second. But I want to stop and just kind of pause and let you comment on that. So that fundamental thing is boredom's attention-based, it's self-regulation-based, but it's that need for stimulation that you have this urge to go for. And when you're bored, this is where ADHD, you have to kind of catch yourself because if you don't catch yourself, you're likely to do something that you're not intending to do just to get satisfied. So it sounds like what you just told me about that I had not thought of before, and I appreciate you bringing it up, is a identification marker. You know, I'm really big on markers. And what happens, markers can be all kinds of markers. I like laboratory markers. Yeah. I like real data. I like something you can see. And what you're saying is, hey, Parker, there's another marker here. 
And this is a marker. It's something you can actually feel somatically if you become conscious of that somatic experience. And that that is a marker for you to turn the light bulb on, which is one of your favorite metaphors. You've got to light up and see what it is before you can actually do anything about it. And just to dovetail this, I interviewed Autumn Zatani a couple years ago. She's headed all the curriculum at Sesame Street, the YouTube channel, the TV show, the apps and stuff. And in season 43, they were trying to teach kids um, self-regulation. And when they started talking about emotional self-regulation, what they did with the puppets first was use the puppets to kind of put a name and a face to the different feelings and have the preschoolers begin to learn how their body feels. And that was important for them when they would feel an emotion, they would feel it in their body. That's the marker for them to trip it. And then when they did that, they would when they went into emotional turmoil and they needed to downregulate, they could catch themselves because they could belly breathe and they could count one, two, three to distance themselves to the trigger. And what I'm talking about here is really the same thing in a different form is that to begin to listen to your body because from a metacognition perspective or a mindfulness for that trigger, what are you going to listen for for you to know that you're in state so that you can pause and override the automatic brain, or as Dr. Um, Barkley talks about, self-regulation is about the ability to direct an action back on yourself to change the behavior, to change the future. It's a future-directed act. So feeling that sensation is the first step to noticing it because you want to inhibit your motivation to do something to fulfill that lack of being comfortable with something that you want more positively as opposed to something that will get you in a little bit of trouble. Yeah, and I'm just going to repeat what you said, folks, because first of all, I want to just catch that word metacognition. Some of our listeners don't know what that word is, and and Jeff and I both love that word because (laughs) we're we're using it all the time, and I just thought because it's so commonplace, and he's talking to me, metacognition is really thinking about thinking and actually having an awareness of what's actually going on in your brain is that metacognitive process. And we're still basically what Jeff is saying, just to take it one step further, and he mentioned several excellent remarks there from different experts in the field, that the whole thing has to do with not taking a counterproductive action, which is so typical of individuals who get bored, is I just have to shake this off. Now, Jeff, one of the things that occurs to me, and I'm going to ask you about this. Now, you know that you're not prepared for this question. And I wasn't even thinking about it, but it just occurred to me because we see so many people over on my side of the fence who are cutters, self-injurious behavior. They're going to cut themselves. They're going to punch walls. They're going to bang their head. They're going to do something to break. That is an impulsive breaking out of something. That is a maladaptive way of dealing with something that has an element, I think, of boredom. Could you talk about self-injurious behavior as a counterproductive activity with the uh, boredom situation? So, so the brain's reward system wants to feel good. And in a moment of boredom, it's typically reactively going to do something in order to stimulate self or to gain that reward. Now, I talk about it with my clients talking about everybody has their own dopamine blueprint. They only have their they do different things. Like one might be to hurt themselves. Other might be go to drink alcohol. Other might be go to eat. Other might be to gamble. Other might be going online. But the bottom line is in the moment of boredom, you're devoid, if you will, the reward system. And you're going to, 
you're going to be uncomfortable because your brain likes to feel good and it's going to go do something to get comfortable. And some people's choice is what you've described. Other people's choice are different types of things. And it's interesting because I'm actually coaching a guy right now who's trying to quit smoking. He's got ADHD and we, we've already identified the trouble markers for him are the times that he's bored. Those are, we're not focused in on the big picture because when he's involved in something that he's interested in, he doesn't have the urge to drink. It's when he's bored or stressed out that he feels that urge to do that. And so going back to your point is in those moments of boredom, that's when we see people, they're motivated to do something to get a reward. Now, I gave a presentation on this a couple of years at a, at a conference in Detroit, and I went through the board, and this woman came up with these eyes all bugged out. And she goes, oh, I get it. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she says, well, I was called into my son's principal's office the other day, and they brought Johnny in, and, and the principal said, hey, Johnny, what happened class today? He says, well, I was bored. He said, then what happened? He says, well, the next thing I knew, I was here. <laughs> Oddly enough, why he was there, he was bored, and he stood up and he mooned the class. That's why he was there. He was <laughs> uncomfortable, and he did it. So metaphorically, going back to your question is, mm -hmm. in those moments where you're agitated, you're not doing some stuff, if it's as simple as self-deprecation or whatever, and it, for whatever gives you a sensation, you find yourself doing that out of impulse. You know, Dr. Barkley talks about the automatic brain and the executive functioning brain. I like that in my world because the amygdala, the automatic brain are on autopilot. You've got to catch yourself and you've got to override that urge to go do those things. And so I'm talking about this is boredom, but again, it's still back to self-regulation. It's a different lens to look through to help people begin to notice. And we'll talk a little bit in a minute about when you understand when you're bored, the, the markers of it, you can begin to look in situations and predict environments where you're going to go to before you get there and know that you're going to be bored. Now you're in a situation where you can pre-plan to say, what am I going to do to stave off boredom? Or what am I going to do to occupy my boredom when I get there? Because if I don't, I'm likely going to have a difficult time self-regulating and do something that I'm going to regret later. So that's a fantastic point. So now what you're saying is, if you actually think about the phenomenon yes. metacognitively, plan and start thinking about the thinking, and you know from history from your own increasing self-awareness, that when you are going to a certain circumstance, that it's going to be difficult for you. It could be a party. You would think yep. a party wouldn't be boring, but a party could be boring. Yes. So what happens? Let's just say a person's going to a party and they're going to be bored. Well, the possibility of being bored at a party would lead them to something that impulsively they ordinarily would not do. <laughs> Jeff has given me the sign of tipping the sauce. <laughs> That's, so I'm going to tell you, this is a story, because I want to get to the practical application of this, but to anchor it, I was coaching a guy for a period of time, big Italian family. He came back, I was coaching him, he came back after Thanksgiving, and first call, I said, you know, it was really bad Thanksgiving. I said, what happened? He said, well, there was a huge fight that had taken place, and we were talking about it, and big Italian family, big four-hour meals and stuff like that, and he began to, like, we put two and two together that he gets bored in the middle of these things. And either what happens, he either starts to drink too much or he starts pushing somebody's buttons because he's bored. He's just trying to get something going. And so we, uh, going into Christmas, he had to go back into the family environment. And we, in order to say, what are we going to do this situation? It just so happens this guy liked playing Sudoku. So we got an electronic Sudoku game and he took it with him because we were anticipating another long meal and he was going to get bored in the middle of it. And the idea was to have something portable that would occupy his mind. And he got there and at the beginning, he started playing Sudoku on the table and his, his, his family got a little upset with him. But he said, listen, I got a coach. <laughs> we're running an experiment. So like back off for a second. And after the four hours it was over with, it was interesting because they were all giving him a hard time because didn't, they didn't think he was paying attention to the conversation, but he would chime in. But the point really is when it was over with, there was no fight. 
Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, uh, the revelation was is just the repetitive boredom of the meal and the conversation because he had ADHD was difficult for him to self-regulate and he was motivated to get comfortable and he needed to drink too much or push some buttons or argue. And so by bringing this thing in, in the anticipation that he was going to be bored, it would be able to help him manage that, which is something else. Remember, I want to talk before we end the show on boredom and sleep. Okay. But in that moment, we knew it was coming. We pre-planned it and he was able to manage himself because he knew that was the environment. He brought something along so that he wasn't motivated to get himself in trouble. A parenthetical thought that may be of interest was that the family itself, entire family was distracted by the game. So they couldn't be as bored because they had a project on their hands trying to get him yep. to engage with the yep. meal. So the very likely ADD group that was impulsively going on with things, actually it helped them because he then became a focus for the it meal gives, and he became a project for the meal. Probably. It, gives, it gives everybody something to pay attention to and you're yeah. no longer bored and it staves off the impulsive thing that would have created the problem. It yeah. sounds kind of funny, but again, we have a break coming up here pretty soon, right? Or do mm-hmm. we have, yep. A, yep. do I have time to tell yeah, t- go ahead. We, we're, we're good. We have another five minutes here. So, Dr. Parker, I found a lot of success with this recently, and I just started talking about it. It dawned on me a couple of years ago, because people with ADHD struggle with sleep. I mean, it's pretty much there. And the first thing everybody talks about sleep hygiene. And mm-hmm. it kind of dawned on me, it's like, well, you need self-regulation in order to implement sleep hygiene. Like, okay, so we're trying to get people to use the very thing that they have a hard time with. But in coaching a couple of people, it dawned on me that most times people with ADHD would fall asleep after they passed out of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And I was coaching a girl one time, and it dawned on me that the most boring time of the day is the moment that you put your head on the pillow until you fall asleep. Now, let's just go with what I've talked about. Those with ADHD struggle with agitated boredom. So when they lay down and they're bored, they're physically uncomfortable with that. So they're motivated to go jump on their phone or jump on the TV or go on the computer. And I began to think about if we're going to manage sleep, shouldn't we be managing that moment of boredom? And I began to experiment around with the notion of like, remember the post-it notes? They were revolutionary because they were something that stuck to something, but they didn't actually hear rip off the wall when you took it. It, was, it had a level of stickiness to work, but it wasn't too sticky. And I use that same thing. And I think, what can capture a person's attention enough to let the melatonin and stuffing kind of kick down that's not overly stimulating, but not boring? And I started expanding around, and, and I've got, this varies, but I've had a lot of luck with adult coloring books. Really? That's interesting. Yes. I have a lawyer says it's changed her life because she sits down and it's the monotonous and the creativity of doing that stuff. She says it occupies her minds and it calms down enough. So it's not overly stimulating, but it's not utterly stimulating. People that like to read, it's just not reading because they'll read like murder mysteries and they can't go to sleep. It's like maybe if you like complicated stuff, maybe you read People Magazine. Also at night, turn off all lights and putting a miner's lat on and playing um, solitaire where you cheat. It's a mindless type thing that requires some thought, but not too much thought. And I again, some people doodle, but the activity is in order to go to sleep, how do we manage boredom? Like mm-hmm. focus in on that. And I, like I said, I've had a lot of success focusing on that to manage it. Again, it's self-regulation at the end of the day, but that notion of putting a spotlight on that and focusing like, okay, how are we going to manage board? How are we going to engage our attention? Again, I've had some, some phenomenal success. And the reason I've only been talking about this in the last year and a half, but again, goes back to you're all about, because brain and the mind and sleep are all connected together, right? They all work mm-hmm. in unison. And if you're going to manage this from a mindfulness perspective, like notice, like I've got to have an activity. What is that activity that'll capture my attention, but not too much that'll enable me to go to sleep. 
again, something that's different out of this. It's all self-regulation, but narrowing that down, and it's weird, kind of makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, Jeff, the thing that occurred to me while you were talking was the imposition, if you will, the use of a structured activity that has some meaning and that is not so complex. You said this, I'm just saying it in a different way, but yep. you're, putting, you're putting a structure in there. And in a way, it's similar to the guy with the Italian family. He unwittingly put a structure into that dinner conversation of what is going on with him? What is going on with his coach? Is this the correct thing for him to be doing in our family? Is this disrespectful or respectful? Everybody started thinking because it puts some structure in an otherwise unstructured situation. And these examples that you're giving actually put some measure of an organization in an otherwise unorganized situation that has limited executive function. You're putting an increased executive function without blowing them out the top. Excellent point. I think that's very interesting. And the next question after that is, what other examples do you have that have worked that would be interesting and useful? I think sleep is a very, very important point because we, we see this all the time. So many people don't know how to go to sleep. And that whole business of the blue light and what's going on with the blue light and what's going on with the sleep, do you recommend to people that they actually exercise or don't exercise? Do you do any of that? Well, first of all, exercise is, if, if they could put exercise in a pill, it would be the ADHD drug of the century. Exercise <laughs> helps with diet. It helps with sleep. In a sense, as a swimmer, you know, I used to swim around a black line for four hours a day. It was funny because there's a pace clock at each sign. And I had, I was always, everything was on a minute. And I learned a sense of that stuff. And so I learned a sense of time. So anyway, exercise is, like I said, it's, it's the greatest thing that you can do for ADHD outside of medications. So certainly it helps go to sleep. And I certainly advocate of that, those people that will exercise to go do that before they go to bed because it's helpful. I'm just mindful of our break because when it comes to boredom, I'm actually kind of coached around boredom when it comes to food prep. Because if you have ADHD, self-regulation, right? And or boredom, a lot of people, they find food prep boredom or cooking and stuff difficult, and when they're bored, they have a tendency to munch, or they, they don't prepare that at all, and then when they're hungry, the board, they just find themselves eating the boredom. Make some sense? Or Jeff, I, I love the fact that you are an announcer, and you host yourself, because <laughs> you are helping me stay on track, buddy. <laughs> and, and he's watching the clock, and he's helping me out, and he's like, I don't want to mess this up. He's doing such a good job, because he's putting structure, Jeff, right now, is putting structure in our conversation. And I'm going to go ahead and take that break right now because I think this is a more a deeper conversation, Jeff, and I want to make sure you yep. have a chance to elaborate on Great it. Great idea. So, folks, what we're going to do, we're going to come back, and Jeff is going to take a moment, or two, or five, when we get back to talk about this other important point is food as a relationship and cooking, which is partly related to food, and food in general which can be a very significant impulsive move for those who are suffering with attention deficit disorder. Folks, we'll be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. 
psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj well jeff thanks for coming back on i'll tell you it's so much fun having you on because i learn something every time i talk to you i think you the thing is really so beneficial about your work both with individuals i mean watch your youtube channel you can get so much out of just those little pithy things that you bring up on YouTube. And it's all free out there, folks. So Jeff is a very innovative thought leader. I think one of the reasons that we really appreciate Jeff is because if you think about what he's done in the interview process, he knows and I know how valuable it is to have the interview process and have the input that you have from so many different really cool minds. And so some of this stuff sounds in a way like it's almost too little to talk about. But my my whole point that I think is really taking place in neuroscience is that we've gone away from the big macro, the obvious in your face thing. And we're going to the minor small things, which is where people actually live their lives, you know? So we're talking about sleep. And right now, Jeff, I'm going to ask you about the relationship between boredom and food and just your open thoughts about whatever occurs there. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really grateful. So if you can, if I want to see, I want to, I want to do this at two levels, okay? I want to talk about a bigger level, and then we'll talk about a smaller level. So Brett Thornhill, I interviewed a couple of years ago, and he talked about meds, mindfulness, exercise, diet, and sleep. Oh, the most important meds out there barring <laughs> pharmaceuticals. And so it's funny because there's no question from the experts that all those things, I have a huge deal on, the, on ADHD brain and they need to be managed. But here's the thing, boredom shows up on all of these. In fact, I do a lot of presentations on exercise and boredom because exercise is a boring thing. Mindfulness is when you're sitting there studying and there's a moment where you're sitting there and your the ADHD mind can wander off into other thoughts. We've already talked about sleep and boredom, not wanting to do that. And, and when it comes to diet, I find often that people with ADHD are eat when they're bored. Because number one, if their attention's engaged in something, they'll go days without eating. I mean, because they're, they're so self-absorbed. But those moments that they're bored, that's when they'll go eat. And I've, I can't tell you how many people I've coached with weight issues, and we didn't focus at all on food. We focused on managing boredom. Is that right? That's interesting. Because it's about something. In fact, there's somebody else I'm working with right now. They're, we're doing other things 
to make it fun and not be bored because in the moment of boredom, it requires more self-regulation because they're bored and it feels good to the reward system. Mm -hmm. So if we can go into it and say, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to kind of create an environment around food where we're paying attention to something else? Or we have, sometimes we've had other projects that we've started, even like write a book, even though we know it'll never get written. But the idea is we're going to write that book through a period of time to occupy their attention so that they're not bored in those times. And by diverting it, I've had a fair amount of success. I've, I've not worked with anybody who's obese, but if we've got to lose 20 or 30 pounds, it's amazingly effective by paying attention to managing and preventing the boredom as a means to reduce diet, reduce the urge to eat. So they would actually, uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that book activity? So what the idea really is, is they would carry around the manuscript and any time it was around food or any time, like let's say you're at the DMV line waiting to get your driver's license tags redone or something like that. We're always bringing something that's a project that they're always working for because it's in those moments of boredom or, or driving around the, down the street or sitting at a bank teller's parking lot. Or those are those times where food is out, you'll have a tendency to grab it. So we pull out like the Sudoku, we pull that out in order to occupy our mind. We start writing at that point in time because the goal focus is they've got a passion for writing the book and we bring it around. We make sure that's available and anytime there's boredom or around meal times, that's the perfect opportunity for us to make some progress on writing the book. The dream and the focus is writing the book and we usually try to make it on their life story or something that they're passionate about and it diverts their attention as a means to starve off the boredom so that they don't impulsively eat. Now, it, again, it's at mealtime, but it's also non-mealtime. Like going to bed, they might actually be writing it. Again, the idea is we're managing weight by managing boredom. Well, and, and just to take that a little bit further in, in the way I would uh, think about it, and I'm identifying with what you're talking about, and I'm, I'm over there with you and either cooking or in bed or eating or whatever. And I'm thinking about the fact that as you write, one of the things you know, because you write and you're putting ideas together all the time. But as you write, you're actually thinking about those connections that occur, whether they were in the past, whether they're in the present, or whether they're in the future. Your mind is taken up with that whole constellation of ideas, whether it was developmentally positive or negative for you, what it meant to other people. I mean, there's so many variables that come up that provide a grid even if you're not writing with pen in hand, that's what I was yep. wondering when you answered the question, because I was thinking that is so terribly interesting because what you're saying is if you can just almost think of something to think about, it's actually a step toward mindfulness <laughs> without being there. Because, you know, with mindfulness, you you have a whole kind of open schedule thing. But what you're saying is let's take it to that first step before you get yep. to mindfulness and let's have mindful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's, it's funny. We're talking about mindfulness here. And there's something I want to talk about here. I want to make sure we get in before it's over because it's kind of contrary to what everybody thinks that, that it's some people are going to cringe out there. But what we do know is that people that are subject to boredom are constantly seeking not to be bored. And we just look at a computer game. There's constant stimulation. And we, the research is clear. The less short-term boredom, it leads to what we call long-term boredom, okay? In other words, you're so stimulated, you actually get tired of the computer games. You get tired. The brain is overstimulated. It actually kind of gets tired. I've actually coached a guy before that was a drug addict one time. He said at one point in time, he just got tired of the drug. He got bored with it because it was whatever. But here's what we know is that short-term boredom, if it's not there, there's a higher, higher propensity to have what's long-term boredom. And the correlation between long-term boredom and depression is huge huge. 
And there's that, that, that saying of bored to death is true. The life expectancy of people, the research shows, is less than those that are not bored. So if you start taking a look around, Dr. Parker, everybody in their moment of boredom these days has their cell phone. It comes out immediately. It's very difficult to be bored because people are pulling that stuff out all the time. And I have a concern about the long-term impact on this because it's going to increase the probability of long-term boredom and I think possibly depression rates down the road. So mm-hmm, how, mm-hmm. what do you do about this kind of stuff? And so I literally, literally as an athlete, Sometimes you got to build your muscle in something. So you got to practice shooting three throws or practice a tennis serve. And I've actually had clients before where we go out and we willfully practice being bored. Oh my gosh. You sit down. You got to tell me about this one. So I'm, this, is, this is a sleep one. This is kind of a funny story. This is like right in the early stages of me learning about this. There was a woman that would, uh, she got off work on Sunday and she had nothing to do on Monday. And she'd basically stay up all night because she'd be stimulating stuff. And so one day I said, listen, you need to just get away from this stuff because you, you got to learn not to be bored. So we agreed that she, she called Uber and Uber was supposed to take her to a park for two hours. So she had to pay the Uber driver the round trip fare because mm-hmm. she had to leave her cell phone at home. And she literally went to the park. And the idea is I want her, the exercise was, I want you to stay there for two hours and be bored. That was the idea, right? Oh my gosh. She arrives. <laughs> She sits on a park bench. You know what happens? She sleeps for two hours. <laughs> and so we started doing it. It was kind of funny because after that, we started like where she would go and she put herself in some situations for five and 10 minutes of time and she would actually practice being bored. And we're kind of way, it's a mindfulness activity. And the idea was to learn how to find things. And so sometimes, because they're not going to be bored, they're going to end up looking at grass or they're, I mean, they're going to find something to look at, right? But it's not mm-hmm. as stimulating as maybe the computer games or the cell phone would be. They were still like, oh, there's a four leaf clover or whatever. But it was, a, it was an idea to practice and resisting that urge to always be occupying your mind with something. And the idea really here and the whole purpose of today was to come on and talk about boredom as a means to a focal point to look at, understand the physical sensation as the trigger and be able to pause and override yourself, the urge to get comfortable with something that's going to get you in trouble. To get you comfortable with something that's not going to get you in trouble. Because remember, you're physically uncomfortable with boredom and you're motivated to escape the plight, to get comfortable. So the idea is to pause and override your impulsive urge to satisfy that with something that might not be good for you, but rather pre-think about it and say, what am I going to do? There's an opportunity coming in. What am I going to do to do that? Or I'm going to actually practice being bored so that when I'm in it, I'm less, I'm less uncomfortable to do something impulsive that would get me in trouble. You know, it's interesting. Now, I, this is going to sound like heresy right now, Jeff. And we got, we got about five more minutes left here, but this is probably heresy because I have so much respect for the great people that I've interviewed who talk about meditation. But in a way, meditation is a, and that's what we we're joking about a moment ago, mindfulness. Because what's going on with meditation is you have a structure to doing nothing, but it is structured. So what happens is, and you actually learn and practice doing nothing. And in fact, the whole Zen thing is don't have anything in your mind. You know, so if you really want to practice that, you develop a skill, you develop a mind muscle that you can manage yourself without actually doing something that would prevent you from being impulsive and living a mindless life. That's interesting. So at the end of the day, let's go to dopamine for a second. The news the media and uh, corporate America, they have picked the lock on the primitive brain. And you're bombarded with 
with stimulation and they really, at the end of the day, they really control a lot more what you're doing and the ability to kind of pause and override that is huge and actually be able to stop and practice these types of things to gain, regain control of your attention. Because let me tell you something, I interviewed, um, Clifford Sussman a couple years ago on screen addiction, and we were talking about the game Jelly Candy Crush, and he talked about all the elements of the game that are addictive. Number one, it's a really easy game to learn, really difficult to be hard. You go searching for candies, and you get points from. Sometimes it's like a jackpot, sometimes it's not. There's a social media thing, a socialness to it, where you you connect with other people. There's a competitive type thing, and they do the game. It's stimulation when you're getting it, and you're you have to play it over a period of time. And so what happens is is you're drawn to that, and so sometimes this practicing boredom is also to get you to stop that stuff because everybody else knows how to get you addicted. They don't want you to be bored because they want you to pay attention to the thing and they're making profits off of it. And so part of this is actually to be able to like, wait a second, I got to get out of this. And the practice of boredom or mindfulness is really a way to reclaim control of what you're paying attention to because you're not in control. The marketers are controlling at this point in time. So it's this kind of weird, and I'm so grateful that you brought me on the show because it's a different way of looking at, kind of manage it in a different way because at the end of the day, I'm all about the mind, thoughtful mind, and it really comes down to the individual and they have to feel it and know something in order to do something about it. And that's the ability to bring awareness today with people and go, oh my God, this is completely different. I feel physically uncomfortable. I'm bored. How can I intentionally manage it? Jeff Copper, you just gave everybody here a chance to think about the current political situation. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and there's an opportunity for practice. The current political situation, I'm doing my electronic medical record, taking notes on patients. And I've got a software, which is one of the best softwares. We paid a ton of money for this software. Mm -hmm. And in comes a little notice about what's going on politically. Actually, what I've learned to do is take it as a humorous pause. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is like a relief. There is nothing new here. This is just another punctuation mark in an opportunity for some transcendent happiness. (laughs) Because the world is going to figure this out. The world will see it. And the more it happens, the more people will be bored and they will be looking for some alternative. You're absolutely right. So it's, again, it goes back to what you do. This is just a coaching lens underneath of it, but it's all the brain, the body, the brain, the mind, how it's all kind of together. And the idea of really intentionally understanding what's going on and be able to manage it. And today was, we're talking about self-regulation attention, just the other side and hope we gave some people some tools and a way of thinking about that they can actively engage in it in such a way to make some sense of it, to control what their intentions are. I think it's been absolutely helpful, Jeff Copper. We really appreciate you coming on board. Let's talk about how people, we've alluded a little bit to some of the things you do. Let's talk about them specifically. Of course, they're going to show up in the show notes, but let's go ahead and talk about how people can connect with you. My website is digcoaching.com. There you can hit the contact button. You can access uh, Attention Talk Radio, Attention Talk Video. I do one-on-one coaching. I do group coaching. But, you know, Dr. Parker, one of the things that I'd like to kind of talk about, I have a, I'm so excited about this. I have a workshop now. Oh, cool. I do called What's It Like to Have ADD? Oh, that's interesting. It's a four-call program. And what I've been able to do, I think, is come up with I call them attention exercises. And what I do is I put a person in an experience and there's an exercise that they need to do. And then when it's over with, so they're in the experience, when the exercise is over with, I talk about the thinking process of that experience Mm -hmm. and then I name it. So it's not like I say what self-regulation is and you describe the process. I put them in it 
And then when they struggle with it, I back off. And so that they understand, and I like the program. It's really, really good for people who don't have ADHD because it's simu- It's not ADHD, but it simulates the experience. And it's funny because they get really frustrated. So they have it. And for people with ADHD, they have ADHD. It's their normal. They have nothing to compare it to. So by simulating, I get them out of their thing, but they're going to struggle with working memory and self-regulation. And when they go back, it puts a spotlight on what's going on. And it really opens up their mind. And I found it very helpful, number one, for people who don't want help. The family goes through it and all of a sudden, oh, I get this. And then for the people that that are supporting ADHD, they finally understand what the plight is like. They don't know how to solve it, but they're no longer frustrated because they get where the person's coming from. And I've had a lot of success with it. I'm excited. And I don't mean to go on too much about it, but it's it's very different. It's I'm putting you in an experience for you to feel it or simulate it. And then I work my way backwards. And so it's... um, I'm very excited about it. So where's that link, Jeff? How do you get there? If they just go to uh, digcoaching.com and click on uh, individual coaching, it's one of the menu. I got group coaching, individual, and it's again, it's what's it like to have ADHD. We actually have an, a class that's coming up on the 21st, but we'll offer it on a regular basis at different calls at different times. And again, I'm excited about it because it's it's nothing like anything I've ever seen because it's experience-based. And the, the whole thing is the, oh, now I get it in a very practical way. You know how much a fan I am of Dr. Barkley's. And we yeah, screw yeah. it all down. ADHD is a self-regulation with a working memory issue. And when we're all done, we get the epicenter. So it's a lot of fun. You know, and listeners who don't know Jeff, his favorite little uh, word <laughs> is aha. <laughs> He's looking for that aha moment. And what, what the aha moment is, is really an opportunity for self-recognition. And really that whole metacognitive process is like, okay, now I have a new awareness that's hit me on a more educational level that I found within myself. It may have been set up by somebody like Jeff Copper talking about how these things work. But when I get it myself, I can do something about it. And so, we really thank you out there, Jeff, for doing that. Go ahead. Well, if I may, this is funny. You and I have a video on uh, that you did with me years ago on Attention Talk video. Mm-hmm. Are your ADHD beds really working? Yeah. We get a lot of comments on that because we start talking about the somatic feeling, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, we start talking about if before you had the meds, you could read four pages of a book. And then we take the meds, you can read four chapters. It's making sense. And I can't tell you how many people have an aha moment and send me emails as a result of that interview that we had, because now they get it. Before it's like, I'm not organized or I'm not feeling the high. Well, no, no, let's do it. And when they get that, they manage it in a different way. It's just exciting. I enjoyed doing those videos with you. Jeff and I have done a lot of videos together. And I appreciate the questions you ask and, and, and helping me get my message out. So it's been very kind of you. So, well, listen, best to you for this fall coming up. Really appreciate getting a chance to see you again and talk to you personally. So we'll have you any back anytime, Jeff. Anytime you have something else to talk about, let's hey, get on. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a good one, Jeff. Take care. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.